All right. If you get your Bibles out, turn with me to Isaiah chapter 58. Isaiah chapter 58. We've been going through this chapter the last several weeks in a series that we're calling Open Your Eyes. Isaiah 58, you can follow along on the screen as well, starting in verse 1. It says, shout, a full-throated shout, hold nothing back, a trumpet blast shout, tell my people what's wrong with their lives, face my family Jacob with their sins. They're busy, busy, busy at worship and love setting all about me. To all appearances, they're a nation of right living people, law abiding, God honoring. They ask me, what's the right thing to do? And love having me on their side. But they also complain, why do we fast and you don't look our way? Why do we humble ourselves and you don't even notice? Well, here's why. The bottom line on your fast days is profit. You drive your employees much too hard. You fast, but at the same time, you bicker and fight. You fast, but you swing a mean fist. The kind of fasting you do won't get your prayers off the ground. You think this is the kind of fast day I'm after, and the day to show off humility, to put on a pious long face and parade around solemnly in black? Do you call that fasting a fast day that I, God, would like? This is the kind of fast day I'm after, to break the chains of injustice, to get rid of exploitation in the workplace, to free the oppressed and to cancel debts. What I'm interested in seeing you do is sharing your food with the hungry, inviting the homeless poor into your homes, putting clothes on the shivering ill-clad, being available to your own families. Do this, and the lights will turn on, and your lives will turn around at once. Your righteousness will pave your way. The God of glory will secure your passage. Then when you pray, God will answer. You'll call out for help, and I'll say, here I am. If you get rid of unfair practices, quit blaming victims, quit gossiping about other people's sins. If you're generous with the hungry and start giving yourselves to the down and out, your lives will begin to glow in the darkness. Your shadowed lives will be bathed in sunlight. I'll always show you where to go. I'll give you a full life in the emptiest of places, firm muscles, strong bones. You'll be like a well-watered garden, a gurgling spring that never runs dry. And this, is, this next verse is what I think is the purpose that we have as a church out here. You'll use the old rubble of past lives to build anew to rebuild the foundation from out of your past. You'll be known as those who can fix anything, restore old ruins, rebuild and renovate, make the community livable again. If you watch your step on the Sabbath and don't use my holy day for personal advantage, if you treat the Sabbath as a day of joy, God's holy day of celebration, if you honor it by refusing business as usual, making money running here and there, then you'll be free to enjoy God. Oh, I'll make you ride high and soar above it all. I'll make you feast on the inheritance of your ancestor Jacob. Yes, God says so. There's just so much jam-packed in this chapter that we've been talking about. And over the last couple of weeks, we've been going through this chapter and looking at how God wants us to live our lives. And when you look at it, this, this chapter is, is pretty radical. It's pretty radical because it describes how we're to live our lives differently, that we're not just to fall into culture, into the status quo. Um, and it challenges really every aspect of our lives. And the reality is, this is exactly what our world needs today. The world doesn't need just mimics. The world doesn't need just people who are going to get stuck in the status quo of living their lives. The world doesn't need religious people. The world needs people who are willing to go all out for the Lord and to live their lives and to make a difference. Dallas Willard, in his book, The Spirit of the Disciplines, he says it this way, the world can no longer be left to mere diplomats, politicians, and business leaders. They've done the best they could, no doubt. But this is an age for spiritual heroes. 
A time for men and women to be heroic in their faith and in spiritual character and power. The greatest danger to the Christian church today is that of pitching its message too low. See, I think this has been the problem for the people of God over and over and over again because there's this tendency for us to drift away from this bold vision that God has for you and for me and how we're to live our lives and to substitute and to settle and to replace what God has with this kind of mm, passive, tamer, safer vision that we put in place over God's vision for our lives. But in Isaiah chapter 1, God tells us what he thinks about this when that's how we start living. Look at this in Isaiah chapter 1, verse 10. It says, listen to my message, you Sodom-schooled leaders. Receive God's revelation, you Gomorrah-schooled people. Why this frenzy of sacrifice, God's asking? Don't you think I've had my fill of burnt offerings, rams, and plump grain-fed calves? Don't you think I've had my fill of blood from bulls, lambs, and goats? When you come before me... Who ever gave you the idea of acting like this, running here and there, doing this and that, all the sheer commotion in the place provided for worship? Quit your worship charades. I can't stand your trivial religious games. Monthly conferences, weekly Sabbath, special meetings, 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 meetings. I can't stand one more. Meetings for this, meetings for that, I hate them. You've worn me out. I'm sick of your religion, 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 while you go right on sinning. When you put on your next prayer performance, I'll be looking the other way. No matter how long or loud or often you pray, I'll not be listening. And you know why? Because you've been tearing people to pieces and your hands are bloody. Go home and wash up. Clean up your act. Sweep your lives clean from your evil doing so I don't have to look at them any longer. Say no to wrong. Learn to do good. Work for justice. Help the down and out. Stand up for the homeless. Go to bat for the defenseless. Now, did you hear what, what God is saying? And you need to understand he's speaking this to people who would call themselves religious. But he's describing here that he's sick of churches and people who just have this, this charade of going through the religious motions of things. He's tired of people just having this, this shiny veneer of faith, but no real depth of commitment. And so if our faith is just a Sunday, go to church every once in a while type of faith, then ours really is an empty religion. And God says he actually despises that. It's pretty strong language that he's using here, but he's speaking to religious people. He's speaking to people who would call themselves followers, Christians, those who are in church. Look again verse 14. Meetings for this, meetings for that. I hate them. You've worn me out. I'm sick of your religion, 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 while you go right on sinning. When you put on your next prayer performance, I'll be looking the other way. No matter how long or loud or often you pray, I'll not be listening now, notice what God's saying here. He says he's so angry and upset about this whole thing that he won't even listen to our prayers or pay attention to our worship rituals. Listen, folks, you need to understand the context of what he's describing here because the best and most important way for us to express our love for God is not what happens here in the context of an average Sunday service. Yes, this is fantastic. Yes, we get to celebrate together. But how we express our love for God is by demonstrating his love tangibly to others. That's what he's talking about here. The Apostle James, he said it this way in James chapter 1, verse 27. He says, religion... That God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, 
to look after orphans and widows in their distress, and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. I love how the message paraphrases this. It says, anyone who sets himself as religious by talking a good name is self-deceived. This kind of religion is hot air and only hot air. Real religion, the kind that passes muster before God the Father, is this. Reach out to the homeless and loveless in their plight and guard against corruption from the godless world. See, it's our faith put in action that shows and proves the authenticity of our faith. You and I, we can go around masking a charade, calling ourselves Christian, calling ourselves religious, but it's faith put in action that proves and verifies the authenticity of our faith. But I think for way too long, what the church has made the mistake in doing is that we put our focus on the long list of things that we're not supposed to do. Don't do this, don't do that, don't say this, don't say that. In Galatians chapter 5, verse 19, it says the acts of the sinful nature are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. You don't have to be a Christian very long, and all of a sudden you'll start hearing people in churches and radio stations beginning to describe all the things that you're not supposed to do. And don't get me wrong, this is really important because it's important for us to discover the destructive um, actions that are really contrary to who God is. But the problem so often is that I think too many Christians and too many churches tend to focus on the don'ts. We tend to put our attention on the don'ts, on the don'ts, on the don'ts. <laughs> My tongue, I can't get things out here this morning. But listen to what I'm saying because I think what happens is that we tend to put our zeal on condemning these sins. And as a result, oftentimes people's perceptions of us then leads us to look like we're judgmental and intolerant. And the reason is because people know us for what we're against, not what we're for. Folks, listen to me. This is what has to change. We have to share with the world what we're for, not so much what we're against. And when you look at history, unfortunately, I think the church has missed this time and time and time again. The big C church, not this church, not a local church, but I'm talking about the big C church worldwide. Because all you have to do is look at the appalling record, the track record of how the church has come on different social issues of that day. But you need to understand that the local church, God's church, is there to be this revolutionary agent of change in our culture, where we are to bring the kingdom of God in where we live, where we're to expand the kingdom of God in where we live, where we are to promote justice and to lift up the, 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 the whole issue of sanctity of human life and where we are to fight for the underdog and to challenge the prevailing um, value systems of our day. If this is who we're supposed to be, if this is the purpose of the church, then the question becomes, why do we tend to always be following up the rear instead of leading the charge in these issues. We're to be agents of change, folks. But when you look historically speaking, what we see time and time and time and time and time again is that what the church has done is that we failed to see from God's perspective what was happening in the culture around us. 
How many remember when TVs and movies were dominated by cowboys and Indians? You remember that? How many of you played cowboys and Indians growing up? And it was just the accepted norm that the cowboys were the good guys and the Indians were the bad guys. But it's only been really in recent years that finally the recognition has gotten what it needed and that the white men, what they really did is that the massacre of the Native Americans really was genocide. And so the question is, where was the church? When you think about colonial America, it was masked with people who came here for religious freedom. In other words, they considered themselves Christians. And so the question becomes, where were they? Where was the church during this time? Because for the most part, Christian settlers and churches either participated in the marginalization of the, of the Native Americans, or at least they turned a blind eye to the atrocities that were being committed by their neighbors and by our government. Slavery is another black dot on the reputation of the church, another example of culture blindness. Because again, for the most part, the church just sat by and did nothing. And to be honest, in many instances, the church was actually one of the main proponents for the continuation of slavery. There's a guy by the name of James H. Thornwell who was a pastor, a southern pastor, and he wrote an editorial in the New Herald Times in 1850. He said this, those who supported the abolition of slavery were atheists, atheists, socialists, communists, and republicans. If all races, sexes, and colors are put upon a footing of equality, these actions will cause the devil and his angels to be jubilant. Did you hear that? This was spoken by a pastor. A pastor was speaking for promoting the issue of slavery. Jump forward to the 1950s and the 1960s of the civil rights movement. Because again, this is another sad chapter for the American and Christians because in many ways, the segregation that happened in our culture was created and sustained by and with the complicity of Christians and churches, both in the North and the South. Martin Luther King Jr. in his letters from Birmingham jail, he spoke directly about the disappointment that he had with the church. Listen to what he wrote. He said, let me take note of my other major disappointments. I've been so greatly disappointed with the white church and its leadership. I do not say this as one of those negative critics who can always find something wrong with the church. I say this as a minister of the gospel who loves the church, who, is, who was nurtured in its bosom, who was sustained by its spiritual blessings, and who will remain true to as long as the cord of life shall lengthen. When I was suddenly capitulated, um, catapulted into the leadership of the bus protest in Montgomery, Alabama a few years ago, I felt we would be supported by the white church. felt like that the white ministers, priests, and rabbis of the South would be among our strongest allies. Instead, some have been outright opponents, refusing to understand free the freedom movement and misrepresenting its leader. All too many others have been more cautious than courageous and remain silent behind the anesthetizing security of stained glass windows. Now listen to those words, more cautious than courageous. More cautious than courageous. Silent behind the anesthetizing security of stained glass windows. I look at these words and I wonder, are these still true for us today? 
Is this still a reflection of the American church, of us individually? Is this still what's happening in our lives? Martin Luther King King Jr. went on to conclude that a church that's lost its voice of justice is a church that's lost its relevance in the world. He says this. He says, the contemporary church is a weak, ineffectual voice with an uncertain sound. So often it is an arch defender of the status quo. Far from being a... um, Disturbed by the presence of the church, the power structures of the average community is consoled by the church's silent and often even vocal sanction of things as they are. But the judgment of God is upon the church as never before. If today's church does not recapture the sacrificial spirit of the early church, it will lose its authenticity, forfeit the loyalty of millions, and be dismissed as an irrelevant social club with no meaning for the 20th century." Every day I meet young people whose disappointment with the church has turned into outright disgust. And so I look and think about the civil rights movement of the 1950s and the 1960s, and I wonder how could the church have missed it so badly? I mean, were we all just frogs in a kettle of this momentum that was happening, it was so comfortable with segregation and racism? I mean, was it really our fault As a church, was it really our fault that we didn't challenge the prevailing values of the culture at that time? Listen to what Jesus said in Mark chapter 7. Because here he's challenging the Pharisees who are a whole other grouping of people who clearly missed it. Mark 7, verse 8, starting verse 6, it says, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites. As it is written, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are but rules taught by men. You've let go of the commands of God and are holding on to the traditions of men. See, I think this is the problem that you and I, we struggle with. Because even though God has called us to challenge our culture and to challenge the status quo instead of being absorbed by it, I think what happens and the problem that we fall into time and time and time and time again is that we fall into this holding on to the traditions of men. And that's then how we live our lives, holding on to the traditions of men. This is what my dad did. This is what my mom did. This is what the church is doing. This is what my community is doing. And we just get absorbed in it. And so it makes me wonder, what are the injustices in our world right now that we're missing? And where are we being absorbed in the prevailing winds of our culture? And then how can we avoid the same mistakes that the church has made in the past. Any of you familiar with Alcoholics Anonymous? You familiar with the organization? There's something that they do at the beginning of every group meeting where you're introducing yourself and you say, hi, my name is dot, 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 and I'm what? An alcoholic. Now, why do they do that? Well, the reason why they do that is to force the person to acknowledge his failure and to stop making excuses. Well, I think this is something that you and I need to do. We need to take the same approach when it comes to our own cultural blindness. We need to recognize our tendency to be culturally blind, to not perceive what's happening in the world around us, and to just get absorbed in the direction that the world is going. Because the tendency is for us just to head in the same direction that everybody else is going, to be pulled with those prevailing winds of our culture. But Jesus said in Matthew chapter 13, verse 13, he says, this is why I speak to them in parables. 
Though seeing, they do not see. Though hearing, they do not hear or understand. In them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah. You will be ever hearing, but never understanding. You'll be ever seeing, but never perceiving. For this people's heart has become callous. They hardly hear um, with their ears, and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, in turn, and I would heal them. Do you see what he's talking about? He's talking about these people, they didn't have a clue that their eyes were blind. They didn't have a clue that their hearts were closed off. And so they needed God to open up their eyes. Listen, folks, may I suggest you something? We're no different. We are no different. The tendency for us is to have our eyes shut to what's going on, our ears plugged to what's going on, our hearts callous to what's going on around us. And so we too need God to open up our eyes. The Apostle Paul said it this way, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 17. He says, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation. And I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. Listen, folks, it's only when God does this it's only when God opens our hearts and opens our eyes where we have the spirit of revelation. It's only then that God will actually be able to use us as this revolutionary agent in the culture in which we live. And let me suggest to you, this is what you're called to. You're not just called to take up oxygen from this planet. You're called to be a revolutionary agent while you are here. Any of you remember a guy by the name of William Wilberforce? You remember him from, from history lessons? Let me read a description of his life. William Wilberforce was a British politician, a philanthropist, and a leader of the movement to abolish the slave trade. A native of Kingston upon Hull, Yorkshire, he began his political career in 1780, eventually becoming the independent member of parliament for Yorkshire. In 1785, he underwent a conversion experience and became an evangelical Christian resulting in major changes to his lifestyle and a lifelong concern for reform. In 1787, he came into contact with Thomas Clarkson and a group of anti-slave trade activists, including Granville Sharp, Hannah Moore, and Charles Middleton. They persuaded Wilberforce to take on the cause of abolition, and he soon became one of the leading English abolitionists. He headed the parliamentary campaign against the British slave trade for 26 years until the passage of the Slave Trade Act in 1807. For 26 years, he, per, he persevered to change the culture in which he lived. Any of you see the movie Amazing Grace? I have some video clips from this to kind of give you a little hint of what he did. Let's watch this. It is with a heavy heart that I bring to the attention of this house a trade which degrades men to the level of brutes and insults the highest qualities of our common nature. I am speaking of the slave trade. I know that many of my honorable friends in this house have interests in the Indies. Others have investments in plantations, others are ship owners. And I believe them to be men of humanity. I believe you all to be men of humanity. I can hardly believe my ears. Oh, we? 
can hardly believe your mouth. <laughs> it seems my young friend opposite has a long-term strategy to destroy the very nation that spawned us. <laughs> While I was in Virginia, losing my fingers in battle with the Americans, he was busy appeasing them. <laughs> now he would hand over the riches of the Indies to the bloody French. <laughs> If we didn't have slaves, there would be no plantations. Right? With no plantations, how would we fill the coffers of the king? Now, does my honourable friend really believe that if we left off the trade, the French wouldn't immediately step into our place and reap the rewards? Slave Trade Act, the unamended bill calling for the abolition of the slave trade throughout the entire British Empire. Nose to the left, 16. Eyes to the right, 283. of the slave trade to be passed. Noblesse oblige. What the bloody hell does that mean? It means my nobility obliges me to recognize the virtue of an exceptional commoner. When people speak of great men, 
They think of men like Napoleon, men of violence. Rarely do they think of peaceful men. But contrast the reception they'll receive when they return home from their battles. Napoleon will arrive in pomp and in power, a man who's achieved the very summit of earthly ambition. And yet his dreams will be haunted by the oppressions of war. William Wilberforce, however, will return to his family, lay his head on his pillow, and remember, the slave trade is no more. Pretty good, huh? Yeah. It's a dramatic visual of what we're talking about here. How one person can change the tide of humanity. One person can make a difference. Let me say it again. Your life matters. Your life matters. John Stott, in his book, Human Rights and Human Wrongs, he said it this way. He said, our Christian ha habit is to bewail the world's deteriorating standards with an air of rather self-righteous dismay. We criticize its violence, dishonesty, immorality, disregard for human life, and materialistic greed. The world is going down the drain, we say with a shrug. But whose fault is it? Who is to blame? Let me put it like this. If the house is dark when nightfall comes, there is no sense in blaming the house. That's what happens when the sun goes down. The question to ask is, where is the light? Similarly, if the meat goes bad and becomes inedible, there's no sense in blaming the meat. This is what happens when bacteria are left alone to breed. The question to ask is, where is the salt? Just so, if society deteriorates and its standard declines until it becomes like a dark night or a stinking fish, there's no sense in blaming society. That is what happens when fallen men and women are left to themselves and human selfishness is unchecked. The question to ask is, where is the church? Why are the salt and light of Jesus Christ not permeating and changing our society? It is sheer hypocrisy on our part to raise our eyebrows and shrug our shoulders or wring our hands. The Lord Jesus told us to be the world's salt and light. If therefore darkness and rottenness abound, it's largely our fault, and we must accept the blame. So the question is, where's the church? 
Because this is our society. This is a culture in which we live in. So where is the church? Where is your voice? See, Jesus said in Matthew 5, verse 13, he says, you are the salt of the earth. Can you say that after me? Say, I am am the salt salt of the earth. earth. Come on, say it again. I am am the salt salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled by men. You are the light of the world. Say that after me. I am am the light light of the world. world. Say it again. I am am the light light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. See, folks, you are called to be that agent of change. You are. I am. You are. We can't get out of this, folks. We live here on this planet. And by the way, this is not heaven. I know Texas is an amazing state and we live here in the hill country. It's fantastic. But this is not heaven, folks. We're still here on earth. And while we're here on earth, while you are here on earth, you have a job to do. You are to be his light. You are to be his salt here on the earth. This quote from Martin Luther King Jr. gets me all the time. He said, we will have to repent of this generation, not merely for the vitriolic words and actions of the bad people, but for the appalling silence of the good people. And so let me ask you a question. Are you being silent? Where's your voice? Are you being an agent of change? Are you just being absorbed in the culture in which we live? Are you just falling in to the status quo, what's happening around us. Where's your voice in all of this? Because this is what God has called you to. He chose you to be a part of this generation for this time, for right now. That's why you are called. That's why you are here. This is not heaven, folks. This is still earth, and we have a job to get done. This morning as we end here, I want to pray here together, but I want to do it differently. I want you to, I want to ask you to stand on your feet, if you would. Just stand to your feet. And I want to just kind of lead you in prayer. If you just close your eyes, and, and I want you to just make this as kind of a, your own personal declaration, your, your own prayer of whatever God is stirring in your own heart here this morning. Just, just pray this out loud after me. Say, God, I realize. God. Say it out loud. God, I realize God. that I can be blind to the injustices and to the sins of omission committed by myself and other Christians. And so, God, Open the eyes of my heart to see the world as you see it. Let my heart be broken by the things that break your heart. Give me the ability to see through this culture and to lead your people with your vision instead of the world's. So shake me free from any and always that I have become absorbed in this culture in which I live and help me to be the salt that you've called me to be and help me to be the light that you've made me to be. I make a decision today to no longer hide my light under a bushel, to no longer just go with the flow of the culture But I make a decision 
today to let my light shine and to let your light, oh God, shine through me to the whole world. In Jesus' name, amen. Come on, let's give the Lord a hand clap here this morning. We're not doing communion this morning because of all the other elements that we're doing here, but I want you to take a moment here just to let that kind of settle in your own heart. What it is that God was speaking. I don't want you to be in a hurry just to move past this. I think this series is really instrumental, and I'm really excited for next week. I hope you're able to come back next week because I'm going to introduce you to somebody that's, that I think is really going to bless you next week. And he's going to kind of finish our, our series. And, and so I want you to, this week, even to be praying about this whole thing. What, what is it that God is speaking to me about what it is that he has for me in this culture, in this time, right now? And let that begin just to stir in your own heart. I think there's something that God wants to do in every one of us. I said this at the beginning when we started this series that I don't always know the end or the conclusion of something. I just always feel, I feel the stirring of God in starting something. And so this is not something, please don't hear it wrong. This is not something that look to the church to do. This is look to you. What is God speaking to you? What is he saying for you in this season of your life? We're going to have people down front here to pray with you. If there's things that are going on in your life that you'd like somebody to agree with, to stand in agreement with you, to pray with you. Sometimes we have a hard time praying for ourselves. And the Bible says that if we'll go together, we'll, if, the, if the two or three are, are gathered together, that he is right there in the midst and there's more than that here. And so you may want somebody just to pray with you, to agree with you, to, to stand with you in whatever you're going through. And so I want you to take time to do that if you would. Also, dads, it's Father's Day. Again, come on, let's honor our dads in the house here. I, I heard this on the radio this morning as I was driving into church. Anybody can be a father, but not everybody can be a dad. And so dads, we honor you here and the investment you've made in your children and your family. And so let me just speak a blessing over you as we leave here this morning. Now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. And may the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and now give you peace. Go in peace, everyone. God bless you. Have a great week.